welcome to Dateline New Haven on WNHH, New Haven's home for community radio. I'm Paul Bass, inviting you to look behind the headlines on the stories that make New Haven tick. Well, we're going way wide today. We're going way to the root of what's making us tick and not tick these days in the headline and the search for humanity's redemption, let's say, in the face of a challenging time. We have a visitor today who's in New Haven for three weeks. He hails from Sweden and from India. He's had a fascinating life journey. He's on a mission to help us find our better selves. His name is Dada Shambhu Shivananda. He's a yogic monk, a teacher of meditation since 1979, and a chancellor of the Ananda Marga Gurukula. I might have said that wrong. But he basically is in charge of a large movement of um, schools and institutes. They have a new magazine promoting the idea of neo-humanism. Welcome to our studio. It's so nice. It was very nice to chat and get to know you before we went on the air. Was that introduction accurate? Thank you. Yes, quite quite accurate. Yes. Okay. So welcome to New Haven. Thank you. And I'll, I guess you've done two out of three Mondays at Lyric Hall. Next Monday at 7 p.m. will be the third session he's doing. If what you listen to today gets you interested in hearing a little more. So Dada, what exactly brings you to New Haven? Is it preaching the, um, spreading the word about neo-humanism? Well, um I'm actually the host, uh, hosted by uh, Peter Dodge of the Edge of the Woods. And we have known each other for almost uh, 45, 50 years. And, um, and I come to U.S. almost every year. And uh, um, I'm building a university township in a rural part of Bengal, in, in West Bengal, in India. A university township. What does that mean? A, a community that's just based around a university. Yeah, well, we are building the the township as well as the university. And is it, it vacant land or what's? The... Yeah, it's uh, it's about five thousand hectares of land that we own. The organization owns, and then there we have about fifty primary schools for children. We have high schools. We have degree college. We have teachers training college, and. Uh, so that's sort of going to be the nerve center of this neo-humanist movement that you're building is going yes, to be there in Bengal, rural Bengal. Yeah, that is the kind of the headquarters of, uh, of this movement. But we are also in more than uh, 100 countries all over the world. I am presently based in Sweden, in Stockholm, and we have a training center in the uh, central part of Sweden where those who want to become yogic monks and nuns, they go there and they take training for three years and then they go and do volunteer work in different parts of the world. And is this the same thing as Ananda Marga, or is it overlap? Yeah, Ananda Marga is the parent organization, and the educational, the board of education of Ananda Marga is called the Ananda Marga Gurukul. And Gurukul means it's a very ancient uh, system of education where the teacher and the students, you know, they, like a Socratic approach, you know, where they transmit their higher consciousness in the children. And they transmit the values which uh, we need to create a better world. So, so neo-humanism would be the umbrella term? Yes. Neo-humanism is the philosophy uh, which is uh, guiding our activities. So what is neo-humanism? Uh, neo-humanism, you know, humanism is love for other human beings. Where human being is the center of everything. But when the love of human heart extends to embrace the entire living and the so-called non-living world, then that is neo-humanism. So neo-humanism looks includes but looks beyond human beings of connecting to forms of life yes, all and forms. our surroundings for some kind of general connectedness and 
unity? Is that well? It is based on the idea that everything in this creation is the manifestation of supreme consciousness. So uh, nothing is inanimate. You know, when we take food, for example, or or medicine, you know, you go uh, to a doctor and he prescribes you. Um, you know, there is the allopaths; they treat you differently. The homeopaths, they treat you differently. The Ayurvedas treat you differently. Is the same body. So uh, you know, we they have a different model of the human body of how it works. So actually, there is uh, because we still do not have a comprehensive model of the human body, which shows the limits and efficacy of different healing traditions. And our idea is that actually. We need to go into the submolecular level, and into what we call the microvita understanding of the human body. That means that everything in this creation, even an atom, consists of billions of living organisms, which are called microvitam in singular and microvita in plural. Microvita、mm -hmm. means the vitality.、Mm -hmm. So what we consider to be inanimate actually is not inanimate because it also has certain properties which makes animation possible. You know, salt. Uh, oxygen, nitrogen, potassium—all these things—they have their own unique properties, and without the, you know, calcium in the body, the, you know, we won't be able to to live and move and do things. So we're not living in isolation. Yes, we are connected to everything. Everything, whether it is so-called inanimate, or animate, organic, or it is、uh, something more developed, which is in the form of human.、Uh, and I would argue that. There are a lot of fronts, philosophical fronts, in our modern society where people are coming to similar conclusions. Correct about the interconnectedness of other beings, and you're saying even animate in our surroundings. Correct it. So I guess one question I'm imagining you deal with when you make these visits is, what do we do with that realization? Well, understanding that we're connected to each other and what's around us. How does that change how we treat each other and treat the earth? Well, first is that we have to recognize that everything in this universe has its own existential value. Every creature, every atom, everything has its own existential value, and then it has certain utility value. Maybe not for human beings always; it may have utility value for other creatures, for other organisms. So we cannot take away the habitats of all creatures and only make it human-centric, because when we do that, it's like we are decreasing the degrees of freedom. You know, because we,、uh, the life is whole because of the presence of all beings, you know, all entities in this universe. So, and now many, many species are becoming extinct, and、uh, many languages are becoming extinct. Many people, everything is becoming like homogeneous. You know, and, and I guess we we attribute some of that to climate change, a lot of which is man-made, right? Right. Part of it to globalization has become more connected as a world. There's a homogenization of culture and language. Yeah. If all of a sudden there was this new consciousness among the world, and we started being caretakers in the land, caretakers trying not to leave a footprint when we walk on this earth to destroy rather than to preserve and create, it would still be true that we would lose species. Correct? It's true that some cultures and languages would die out. So, to what extent is the unfortunate tendency of human beings to destroy? And not have that consciousness, part of the process of natural evolution and devolution. To what extent is the effort you and others make to raise consciousness 
and to preserve life also part of the natural process of species journey through the through our planet does that make sense as a question yes the, you know change is inevitable in in creation it's always we are human beings are also evolving you know before uh, from apes to human beings you know uh, human beings have not been here from the beginning of the of the creation they we're have, like the last two minutes or less, right? yeah. in terms of cosmic time, right? right. The last twenty seconds. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, so I think changes will occur, but we uh, have to learn from the uh, the past and preserve the positive things which have been there in in the creation, and uh, build upon them. And uh, because many of the, for example, uh, herbs, they will be they are becoming extinct also. So we need to, and they can be very useful for the for the creation. So I think uh, in preservation of the different uh, species and different uh, uh, organisms, we are also, there is both good and bad in the creation, but we have to learn how to harness the potentiality which is there in the creation for the good of all. And I guess I wonder, is that part of what it means to be human? Because um, you can make a choice, right? Right. And, and other species, you know, you have invasive species, right? So when I go in Edgewood Park, there are invasive species that have taken over from stuff that used to be here. So then there are people who want to come preserve those species. But then I wonder, is that an interruption of a process? Like I support it, right? But but is that, to what extent is our intervention not necessarily steering? How do we know when our interventions in the, like we know it's easy, we shouldn't be polluting. We know we shouldn't be killing all species. We shouldn't be, you know, sm creating all the smog that makes it hard for people to breathe and, and changes the climate. How do we know in general when our intervention is positive and leaves the world a better place? Well, in every creature, there is a thirst for happiness. There is a thirst for joy. There is a thirst for harmony, for, for uh, equanimity, for tranquility, for peace. And I think when we disturb, uh, nobody wants to give away their life Willingly, you know, everybody wants to exist. So, of course, uh, some things will disappear in course of time, but uh, they should not disappear prematurely. And, you know, like a child is born, we know that one day the child will grow up and one day he has to die. But when the child dies prematurely, then that's, uh, you know, concern for us that, oh, because we did not take care of it or uh, if we understand the things better, perhaps we can uh, allow that life to manifest its potentiality so i think our goal is is uh, not to stop the process of uh, creation and destruction that is you know that will continue forever but uh, we just make it uh, possible for every entity to manifest their innate potentiality that's kind of beautiful and we're talking about that with dada shambhu shivananda who's a yogic monk and leader of a worldwide network based in bengal but all over the world promoting neo-humanism. He's in New Haven for three weeks. You can catch him at Lyric Call next Monday night at 7. He's here on WNHHFM State Line, New Haven. So when I'm listening to you talk, I think about it can feel overwhelming to us sometimes as humans, right? We worry, how do we do right every day? And it's a challenge not to be destructive, right? To leave a better, to say that the world's a better place even in a small way because you were here. And sometimes we, in our efforts to make it better, we can have unintended consequences and make it worse, right? We try our best, right? So I think about creation in that process. So we know all sorts of stuff we can avoid doing that would 
reduce harm, whether it's use of fossil fuels or supporting, you know, uh, mono agriculture, big agriculture. How about the act of creation? That's human too, right? When we have, we strive, we have our goals to have a business or to create art or to make machines. How do we make sure that we have a, what you would call a neo-humanistic framework in which we make those decisions so that we make sure we are well, contributing rather than destroying? I think we have to function at three levels. You know, one is the individual level. We are born and we know that we are born with a certain level of consciousness and a stage will come when we have to leave this world. So we want to, able to be able to leave this world with a higher level of consciousness. That is the purpose of our existence. Is, is consciousness. Yes, how to raise our consciousness until it becomes one with the supreme consciousness. Mm. So individually, we have to learn how to take care of this body, how to control our propensities, emotions, mind, and uh, you know, uh, and then how to connect with that part of us, the cosmic spirit in us. When that leaves the body, even billions of neurons, they are not able to do anything. So I think we have such a precious resource which is uh, within us. But we, people spend their whole life never even uh, taking the time to explore it. So that's why you know, I teach meditation, I teach certain yogic practices, I teach about nutrition and diet and health and what we can do. Just to, so that at, uh, at the individual level we can be at peace with ourselves and explore that uh, part of us you know, where there is uh, happiness and joy. So it's not dependent only on something external. Uh, but and second is that we live in a community, we live in a society, we live in institutions. And if the institutions are doing things which are taking us in the wrong direction, then we become party to that also. So that's why we need to have, we need to engage ourselves with those institutions which have similar values, who want to help to create a better world and to create a peaceful world. And, uh, and I think that's where we need also advocacy and uh, uh, political advocacy also because uh, all those things affect us. The decisions of the governments, of the leaders, they affect you know, millions of people. So therefore, I think it's important that we uh, follow um, or we operate from a higher level of consciousness. Like as it is said, we cannot uh, solve the problems from the same level of consciousness which has created them. And today we have war, whether in Ukraine or whether in, in Israel, Palestine, or whether in, uh, in Afghanistan and other places. And I think uh, we, ha we need a new approach, a new way of thinking in order to address the problems of humanity and of the, of the, of the, uh, of the planet Earth. So that's why I think uh, uh, beyond the institutional, we need a new philosophy of life. And that's the reason why I'm going all around the world talking about neo-humanism, because I think that even the humanistic approach is not enough today. If we think about our religion, our uh, race, our uh, culture, that is not enough. You know, everybody needs to co coexist in this creation. You know, they need a place. When we take away their habitats, then, you know, we create problems. Like when we took away the habitats of bats and we got this coronavirus, right. which, uh, you know, created havoc. Something so small and yet it just, you know, put everybody on their knees. So I think um, we have to begin to recognize that 
everybody who is born in this cre- in the, uh, created in this world we need to think about their welfare and what they need for their basic existence you know people all, all people want a good home you know uh, good schooling and they want uh, good food and things like this now our military budget goes in billions and trillions and trillions of dollars if we could you know come together and and direct and and start uh, minimizing the you know the the wealth that we spend on just killing one another and instead utilize it for solving the problems of these people i think uh, this world will become a happy place jeff hutchins writes in Welcome. We apologize for Paul. As you can see, he's very smart, but doesn't mind thinking out loud. And neo-humanism, exclamation point. Thanks for listening, Jeff, and for weighing in. So I kind of thought I heard a two-step here. That the first step for getting where we want to go as a people and to a neo-humanist vision starts with the individual finding inner peace. That you can't, is it accurate that you you can't help others until you are in a position where you've raised your consciousness, where you're starting from a place of the right goals and is that accurate yeah, yes we have because it's not only theoretical you have to live that life of uh, harmony and of joy and of uh, happiness and peace if you don't have peace within you cannot bring peace outside and then you're saying once you have the peace within you apply that to like-minded people of advocacy and the institutions you work in yes so for people who are working all day two jobs um, struggling to make ends meet they have a hard time sometimes thinking about consciousness, being in touch with what they care about just to get through the day. How, how do we apply neo-humanism? Is that we as a society alleviate those conditions so that people do have time to and space to center themselves and connect with who they are and who's around them? Yes, I think, uh, well, first of all, the people have to make commitment to themselves and they have to say, okay, I have to find some time to go deeper inside of me because the spiritual power in the human beings is much more powerful than intellectual <laughs> acumen and and the intellect is more powerful than the physical but today the physical has become more important and everything else goes into the background so i think that's why we need a value based civilization you know and uh, it's it, it will start with the individual but then it's not enough only that you know one practices uh, by themselves i think we also need to bring it in the field of through knowledge to educate the the new generation in those values that's why you know i have about 1200 schools for children all over the world and why i focus on children because i feel that they are the future so if we start at a very early age and we inculcate those values you know for example you know just in the last uh, during the corona period two years i was at in this place in in india in west bengal uh, anandnagar and um, and there these uh, i started some classes like ayurved classes for adults but small children would come and disturb so what i did was i thought maybe i should do something for them so i just spread a mat on the on the on the ground and started with 10 children and soon those 10 became 20 and 30 and 40 what did you teach them and i you know i have never taught children in my life and you know, i have given talks at the universities and the places but uh, i just uh, you know improvised many things and they would come for 3 hours from 6 o'clock in the morning till 9 o'clock in the morning and there were 30 40 of them waiting even at 6 o'clock in the morning you know to participate in the activities 
and now these children they can say thank you in 35 languages of the world they do meditation for 10 minutes That's beautiful they practice yoga they do drama art you know dance and, uh, and they can say you know uh, the numerals in in chinese in german in in different languages so uh, they learned about the periodic table of elements and things like uh, about the space science about the anatomy physiology they can tell you about the you know, function of the frontal lobe and parietal lobe and temporal lobe and occipital lobe and the glands that which are there in the body i brought stethoscope for them so they can listen to their heartbeat and they can see something more is going on inside the body that they are ordinarily aware of so you know i it was just an experiment which i started but it became a very successful experiment and and of course because i have a whole system of education called new humanistic education and we have uh, many scholars you know do, one of my colleagues dr kathleen kassen she's just written a book on uh, like a textbook on new humanist education it's going to be published by new age uh, publishing company i think or something so um, so i think it is just to make them uh, to raise their level of awareness and and consciousness i would taught them uh, songs you know in their language because my master he composed about 5019 songs mostly in bengali but some in sanskrit some in english some in hindi some in other languages so uh, and, and and they learned about 40 50 of those songs and uh, so and they learned many old uh, shlokas from rigveda many sutras and even simple things like the supreme consciousness is my father this uh, cosmic uh, energy is my mother and this universe is my homeland you know ideas like this you know it it raises their consciousness so i felt that actually they are the best points of intervention if we want to create a better world yeah, instead of are the schools full day schools or are they supplements to schools kids otherwise go to your 1200 schools yeah no there are regular schools but this is a, a, a kind of a Uh, before school or after school program so that is just like a learning center gurukul like le- they learn a lot more in the supplemental school yes in fact school. you know they, they uh, uh, you know when they go to the other schools they find that they are far ahead of the uh, other kids because they have a level of understanding and their memory is so sharp they do meditation so their concentration level is much better and uh, so it's it, i'm really amazed at what these children you know uh, uh, they could do in the future if they were given that attention and i think oh, basically it is just the love you know they they feel you know i take them on learning journeys on my jeep you know i would take them to the um, dairy farm or take them to our soap factory or i take them to the you know dam and uh, or to the mountain and things so i think that relationship between the the teacher and the student that bond which used to be there in the ancient gurukul system but with the guru and the disciple you know that's very important you know once you establish that then i feel that anything that i know they can easily grasp it's like even any one child learns all the other children they learn by themselves but from the, from among themselves so you don't even have to make an effort to have them to memorize anything nothing it's just fun they come there for you know two three and i used to spend almost two hours myself with the children uh, and um, 
So like this, of course, uh, we are trying now to uh, bring such ideas in all the other schools also that we have. We have a school in Long Island. In, uh, it's called the Progressive School of Long Island. It is running for almost, uh, I think, uh, 35, 40 years. You know, one of uh, my friends, who Eric Jacobson, who was, uh, we were living together in Philadelphia when I was at Penn. And, uh, you know, first he started with a Montessori school, uh, you know, training in Montessori. And then he started a new humanist school in, in Merrick, uh, Long Island, New York. And it's at, up to eighth grade. It's a regular school and very successful. And it's uh, so, uh, so like this, we have, you know, in, uh, we have one in uh, Oregon. We have in Asheville, North Carolina. We have in Central America. We have in Haiti. We are reaching out to about 35,000 uh, uh, children through the, through the whole education, uh, Ministry of Education. We are introducing many of these concepts and ideas. There. And we're talking to Dada Shambhu Shivananda, who is a yogic monk. Chancellor Vananda Marga Gurkula talks about the worldwide quest that he's helping to lead for neo-humanism and neo-humanistic values. You have a fascinating journey of your own. So you're, you said you hadn't previously taught children. Yeah. You were teaching college kids about economics and business originally, right? You're from, you grew up in India? Yes, I was born in India. You know, my name, Shambhu Shivananda means, Shambhu means starting point of creation. Mm-hmm. And Shiva means pure consciousness. Ananda means bliss. So the bliss of pure consciousness in its primordial state. That is my spiritual name. And when I came here, I was already uh, was practicing meditation. And I had my master in India at that time. And, uh, but when I came to Penn, and of course, for, uh, that was in 1969 when I came to U.S. And I, I joined because I was a gold medalist from Punjab University in North India. So it was easy to get admitted here and, and then uh, pursued. But it was quite a challenge for me because it was a different life, different system, different people. And, um, but uh, it was the most uh, interesting part of my, you know, in my life, those 10 years, those so hippie, you, hippie you, days. <laughs> you were hippie, but you were studying economics and business. Yes. I, Why were you pursuing that? Um, well, what was I, the goal? I think, you know, my worldly father, he was a criminal lawyer in the Supreme Court of India. Mm-hmm. And while in India, I was very much always with monks and nuns all the time running around you know, doing these things. So he thought if he goes to America, he probably will forget all these things and he will uh, be subdued by the, you know, the glamour of, the, of America. So he thought that maybe that, would, that was his reason to encourage me to come here. And, um, and my, of course, journey was that I just wanted to fulfill uh, my educational you know, uh, career and then decide what I wanted to do. So in 19, after, after teaching for a few years, and for, um, so in 1979, I left everything and uh, became a yogic monk. Was and there a day when you said you were in a classroom teaching about supply-side economics or, you know, the surplus value theory of labor? Was there a moment you said, this isn't my calling, I'm pivoting? Yeah, in fact, you know, while I was writing my doctoral dissertation, you know, I had many options, but I chose the topic which would be more closer to this, uh, my humanistic approach to life. And that was uh, planning nutrition interventions in developing countries. So I looked at what multinational corporations are doing and I developed models, you know, of how that get, could affect the Was nutrition. there yet the issue about Nestle and the infant formula? Yes, yes, all those kind of issues. Were you were involved there. in that campaign? Yeah, yeah. 
And so I, uh, so after finishing my dissertation and the things, then I, uh, then I decided, okay, well, I think I just want to do something which is real and not only, uh, because I was here removed from the, the worldly reality. So I spent two years in Africa, two years in the Middle East, and uh, then about uh, 10 years in Europe. And then I went back to India and I, I uh, uh, to work at that, uh, you know, Anandagar, where I started the. Were, were those trips to Middle East and Africa part of the research about nutritional interventions by government? No, that was after I had done it. I'd, I had become, I was the head of our uh, Anandamarga mission in, in uh, Africa, Europe, uh, Middle East, and then Europe. So was it a gradual process rather than a moment of revelation or pivot? Yes, yeah. It was, actually, I, it was my calling all along. I knew that that's what, uh, and I have never regretted it because... Uh, you know, I really got to see the people in the slums of Pangani, Nairobi. And I have uh, moved, used to go from Israel to Jordan, to Egypt, to Cyprus and Turkey and Syria and all those places. And so I really saw where people were, what were they going through. And I think in that way, uh, of course, I had the tools, both academic as well as the uh, meditation practices, which I taught in all these places. And I think uh, then I realized that actually that is uh, the solution. The solution is on three levels. It is uh, uh, a socioeconomic, alternative socioeconomic model, which we call Prout, progressive utilization theory. Then it is neo-humanism, which is the uh, mental outlook that where everything is interconnected and everything is, is important. And then the spiritual dimension, the yoga, the meditation and the tantra. So I used all these three tools in, to help people to, or to uh, address different issues in different parts of the world. And uh, I addressed the Lithuanian parliament when they declared independence. I was at the Kyoto Forum. I was at the Parliament of World Religions. So I, I addressed uh, many... Uh, what was the proud aspect? I get the neo-humanism. I understand the, um, the uh, spiritual transcendental aspect of it. It sounds like there's also a specific kind of policy yes the socio-economic system and what is that system that's basically that uh, you know uh, the centralization of economic power is what is at the root of many problems the wealth disparities is the biggest problem today <clears throat> in the world and now it has come within the academic discourse where you know uh, thomas piketty his research work has shown that you know how much concentration of wealth is increasing even during the corona period the concentration increased so um and Prout is just decentralization of economy. Let each area, each zone become economically self-sufficient and self-reliant in all its minimum essentialities of life. And if we had done that, then during Corona period, we would not have to suffer so much because you would be able to draw uh, you know, your resources from your local areas. And um, so, um, so that's one aspect of it, but also that we need to uh, have a, a global... Uh, collaboration in because you know the nature does not distinguish between one country or another country so we need uh, more global collaboration uh, politically in order to uh, you know to like millennium sustainable goals for example or to to create a society in which everybody's needs are taken care of so as you're aware there's a whole reigning, though now being reconsidered, 
economic approach and political approach that runs exactly counter to what you're talking about, which is neoliberalism and globalism. Yes. yes. So the idea is that you talk about how we're interconnected as nations, we need to work together politically. The theory, which didn't work out too well in a, place, a bunch of places we tried it, was that the more you increase trade and interdependence, the more that you can have lift all boats and create more wealth, and that though it's less, according to the conservatives who make this argument, inequality is not the problem, it's how big you grow the pie through having the profit motive and the competitive motive, but also trade. I understand there are a lot of ways we've seen that hasn't worked out the way we thought and exposed during um, coronavirus. Mm. But what do you say to people who, who make that argument to you that we're one world and that the best way to have peace is to trade rather than to fight and to try to create more wealth altogether? I mean, there are all these issues like how much value we lose and hurt the environment by shipping stuff so far and not eating bioregionally. Or, yeah. you know, I understand there are a lot of counterarguments. Well, you know, you need... Uh balance in every aspect of life and in the material level you know you need balance in three things one you need you know the demand side you know the people have wants and everybody has those desires we need to have uh, uh, prioritize what is the most important needs of the people and then you need to have goods and services which will fulfill those needs and then you need purchasing power if you don't have the purchasing power you, even if there is demand and even if there is supply you cannot have so if you want to create a balance in the economic sphere, then we need to create a balance between these three things. Now what is happening is that the purchasing power of people is going down and down. Inflation, due to inflation and, uh, due to, and, and the cost of things also goes up. The farther you bring things from you know, to, to, uh, transportation costs, you know, pollution costs and all these things, they increase. So as far as possible, if you want to minimize the cost, you know, just from an economical standpoint, I think it would be better if we create a regional self-reliance, you know, as far as possible. Where you cannot, uh, some things don't grow in certain places and you need to import. There is no problem to import from anywhere, you know. But let the basic needs of all people be met. And that way also the, uh, you know, the income generation also goes back into the, to the local people. And that way, you know, you don't have a centralization of economic power, but you have a more decentralized and there is a, a more a parity in the uh, in the wealth. Well, to be honest, you are preaching to the choir here because I also share your yeah. thoughts about local self-reliance. The um, and that got exposed in, as you said, in mm. the in the um. But there's also the demand side, as you pointed out. So, if people want more than they need to have, like, is it important to eat out of season cherry tomatoes? Yeah or apples from South Africa rather than eating the apples that are grown in season here and then eating other fruits or canning. Is there an issue about demand? Because people, all the energy we use, like there are all these imperfect solutions. We thought fracking might help and fell fracking, you know, is a new form of pollution. Is there any alternative to working on lowering the demand for how much we think we need to be happy or how much... Well, I, th I think these are small issues concerning the food aspect because we have today the technology to be able to create food uh, irrespective of the seasons through greenhouses or whatever. But I think it is the, you know, we are investing so much of our funds in the military industrial complex. It is that we have to redirect the, the resources from that side 
too fulfilling the demands. And of the when people. we do that, you know, we've worked a lot about, and maybe there'll be amazing more innovations with hydrogen that will allow us to create this energy to meet this insatiable need. And with AI, they're saying we're going to have all far, whole entire farms of, of energy generation. Are you of mind? Because I know my wife's big issue always is when she looks at all this stuff, says we just should not consume so much energy, which does not seem to be a popular position or where the human race is going. Where do you stand? Because I hear what you're saying that if we didn't waste so much money in the military industrial complex, if we found more peaceful ways of using our wealth and our generation, we could provide for a lot more people. So obviously we're not saying people should live on no calories a day. Yeah. But what about energy production and, and fossil fuels and looking, you know, we're trying to win farms and solar. They have some of their issues as well. Do you agree with her that one of the fundamental issues as well is refocusing what we're aiming for in terms of not need to continue how much energy we generate in the first place? The demand well, side. You know, the sun is giving energy to this earth. And we hardly use, very small fraction of it we use. It is the greatest uh, nuclear reactor we have is, uh, is the sun itself. Now, our only problem is how to conserve that energy, how to store that energy. This is the biggest problem. And today, I have a friend in, in, uh, in uh, Thailand and uh, who uh, is the president of a company called Thai Gypsum. And uh, he created another company, Selenium. And he has one Italian scientist, Placido Spaziante, who has developed the system of you can store energy in electrolyte, just like you have water dams. See, water is a resource which we all need to, uh, to survive. So, but, so we can create you know, fresh water uh, dams where we can fulfill our needs of water. Similarly, energy also could be stored within, the, within these kind of dams called uh, electrolyte dams, you know, because and, and it has infinite shelf life because vanadium or iron or some of these metals they have properties where it is possible to store energy you know because in vo2 vo3 vo4 vo5 they have different oxidation states and they have different properties so they have developed what is known as vanadium redox flow batteries it is quite common it is known now among the the people who are working in the field of uh, uh, alternative energy storage systems that this is a one of the uh, possibilities that would help with your decentralization because we yes. can have local power right. cooperatives of neighborhoods rather than grids where exactly. we lose so much of it going back and forth okay. how does this tie into the question with other kinds of alternative battery storage when we're concerned about the raw materials that have to be taken out of the earth to supply them well um, this is a more, the electrolytes is a more locally based environmentally friendly process well, uh, this uh, uh, is uh, uh, better than some of the other alternatives, you know, because they have also infinite shelf life. Mm -hmm. So this, uh, from what I gather, you know, uh, from, from them is that, uh, you know, this would be much more efficient and much more, you know, uh, sustainable, you know, approach. Well, I, for I the really whole. love to hear more yeah. about that. Yeah. We're talking to Dada Shambhu Shivananda, a yogic monk who's touring our area from his home bases in Sweden and India promoting neo-humanism. When you look at what's happening in Ukraine, you look up in the Middle East, Israel and Palestine, we're all feeling such despair about that. From the perspective of the philosophy you're promoting, any advice for us as individuals and as a world for how to approach these challenges? And it's okay if you don't feel you can solve the greatest problems of humanity <laughs> in the next 20 seconds. Yeah. We're all looking for guidance. Um, 
I think, you know, one of the greatest uh, obstacles we have is dogma. You know, religious dogma or uh, uh, scientific dogmas or economic dogmas or political dogmas or dogmas which the leaders, you know. So I think that the leaders have to think of new ways to solve problems. The old models of leadership, the old models of addressing these issues are not going to work because it is me versus them and it is not win-win solution. So we have to look for win-win solutions. Where Palestinians also benefit, Israelis also benefit, Hamas is also satisfied and somehow you know we do. So that how to give up this war is the most ugly, you know, it's only destroys, it destroys the nature. You see, so many millions of people have been uprooted from Ukraine and uh, it, it destroyed the nature completely. It was the breadbasket for, you know, for grains and for many things is now completely. Inflation in, in Europe is skyrocketing. You know, in Sweden where I live, I see something would cost 10 kroners is now 20 kroners, just doubled almost. So I think it is possible to solve the problems, but they cannot be solved by the mindset with which we are running the world today. You know, this nation state itself is one of the biggest obstacles in solving the problems. China versus India, they are both trying to increase their arsenal of, of weapons and, uh, you know, so that they can, uh, even they don't know if they will be a war or not war, but they are preparing for this. So once they prepare something, then sooner or later they are going to use it. How do we get there? There's so many of us who feel like nations are a problem, but you can't just pick one nation and say, okay, you can't have that nation, but you can have others. How do we... How do we get there beyond the nation state? Well, that is why I think we have... Decentralization you talked about. Global, at, at the global level, for example, I think recently, you know, um, uh, Narendra Modi in, you know, in G20 meetings in India, he tried to bring the people together and, and through dialogue and, and try to find some way that, you know, there could be some uh, harmonious approach to dealing with issues. And I think uh, we need many such leaders. I don't think he is the only one or he's the only one who is trying. You know, I, I met with, um, uh, you know, Prabowo Sabianto, who is currently the defense minister in, uh, in Indonesia, and he was the presidential candidate. And I spent many hours with him, and he learned meditation also from me. And, uh, and he has also been speaking about how to uh, bring about peace, you know, in in. in between Russia and, and Europe and all these. So I think that we really need to invest more in dialogue and uh, collaboration and discussions. And I think before we you know, uh, go uh, to war. And I think uh, Israel also at this stage, I think even though what has happened to them is not nice what Hamas has done, but I think they should, they don't need, they should not react to what they have done. Because if they react, then there's no difference between them them and Hamas, you know, they will be the same. So I think they have to come out and, and, and of course they will have to disarm Hamas, whether they do it now or whether they do it, you know, uh, after uh, a few years, they will have to because this uh, process has to stop. And I think uh, so we need uh, more spiritually or, uh, you know, based or, or enlightened consciousness. People at the helm of leadership, I think from all walks of life have to come together and because it affects all of us. It doesn't only affect... It doesn't the, stop. Yeah, it doesn't... You don't win yeah. long-term by winning yeah. one day. And our goal should be, let us look for win-win solutions for everybody. Let yeah. us create a world in which everybody wins and not 
nature loses or human beings win, animals lose or and human beings win. No, it should be where the animals are also happy, the the nature is happy, human beings are happy of all races, all all religions, they all are happy. So I think that is the direction we have to push the world towards. And I just uh, start with children to create that consciousness in them so that they can be the future leaders of, of, the, of the humanity. Well, your lips to God's ears. What, what's next on your trip? Well, uh, I'll be going back to Sweden and to going back to Anandnagar, which is where my projects are at the moment. But, uh, you know, I move around. I go all over the world. Depends on where my, you know, events take me. And... Uh, but I'm here in New Haven for uh, another two weeks. And, uh, um, and if anybody needs to contact me, you know, they can just contact uh, Peter at the edge of the woods. Peter Dodge. Yeah, Peter Dodge. Our, our Jewish tradition has some called Lamed Favniks. It's 36, the 36 righteous people who are alive at any time in the world. I have someone who has theories that Peter yeah. is one of those 36. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, Peter Dodge yeah. is at the edge of the woods and he can get you in touch with that. Shambhu Sivananda. You could also find him on the web. There's a lot more to learn. Thank you so much for making time in your journey. You sure inspired me today. Thank you. I love learning about what you're up to, and I wish you the best. Thank you very much. The more, the, more, the better you do, the better we all will do. Yes, and I have a few books. Uh, I don't have them uh, available right now, but uh, uh, Mystic Verses is a poetry book which I wrote, and I can share that with anybody who is interested. And then uh, Thoughts for a New Era, which is a collection of my speeches that I've given. And uh, uh, Towards a Brighter Future, which is my spiritual memoir. Okay, well, thank you so much for joining us. And thank you, Peter Dodge, for arranging this. And to Harry Dross for working the controls and getting us into more platforms than there are multiverses. We're going to take it out with the Afro-Semitic experience performing I Wish I Knew How It Feel to Be Free from the group CD, A Plea for Peace. This is Paul Bass inviting you to fly free with us all day and all night long at WNHH, New Haven's home for community radio. Music